Great. Um, thank you very much for that really kind introduction. It's really lovely to be here to speak to you all today. Um, I have some slides, um, so I'm going to try and share my screen. I'm not very tech savvy, so let's see. Makes me feel a bit better that you're not brilliant at everything. You can't share your screen. That gives me some hope. <laughs> I'm definitely not brilliant at everything. Two seconds. That's all right. You take your time. We even had even the guy from Twitter, the manager director of Twitter, took a moment to get onto his slide. So that, that shows that technology is not, doesn't always work <laughs> seamlessly. That makes me feel a lot better. One second. Yeah, no, that cheered me up a lot as well, actually. Yeah, I think technology is one of those things, isn't it? Even if you know it inside out, it can still cause you problems at the last second. Uh, oh, I'm going to have to come in and um, come out and then come back in to do it. So maybe I just won't share my slides. Then totally up to you. It's up to you, Sammy. We've got time if you want to hop off and hop in. Whichever is easier for you. No, that's okay. They've basically just got Harry Potter pictures on them, I'll just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So, sorry about that. Hello. Um, oh, no yeah. worries. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me here today. Um, I was super nervous when Joe asked me to come and speak to you today about leadership because this is a virtual room full of leaders and Joe will, I'm sure, attest to when he asked me, I said, well, <laughs> what can I possibly have to add that you don't already know? And I suppose some of that is probably my imposter syndrome. Um, myself and my imposter syndrome we're old friends and we have a love-hate relationship and we don't always get on well but uh, but it's there um but I think it's it's probably something a bit more than imposter syndrome and I think it's maybe because clinicians in general actually we're probably not natural leaders and don't tell my colleagues and other doctors that I've said this but it's not really our our natural role you know, compared to you guys, actually, we're used to managing patients and not people and advocating for our patients and not the profession, you know, not the NHS and certainly not um, for public health um, during a pandemic. Yeah, in this crisis, it's definitely been clinicians that have found themselves sort of thrust quite unwillingly, I think, in many circumstances into the spotlight. And actually, I think that's come about because a public has been you know very hungry for the truth and has felt for some reason that actually it's clinicians they could trust and it's clinicians that they they wanted to hear from so many doctors really found their voice during this pandemic and it's those sort of people um, that we call reluctant leaders um, so for the next sort of 20 minutes half an hour I'd like to talk to you about reluctant leadership something a, a little bit different that you maybe might not have heard of um, a little bit about how things have been on the front line what reluctant leaders have done for us during the pandemic and how you can help us going forward and there might be some reluctant leaders amongst you in this virtual room and hopefully we can turn at least one of you into a keen and eager one. Um, so I did have a lovely slide <laughs> of Eisenhower, um, President Eisenhower, and he is often um, called a reluctant leader. So his story is in 1952, he found himself nominated for the New Hampshire primary. Didn't matter that he had zero interest in being a leader, zero interest in running for president. Um, 
but in fact it was probably exactly that and it's often cited that it was his complete lack of personal ambition which made people um, warm to him so much in fact so much so that every newspaper changed their headline overnight to support him um, but he didn't see himself as a leader and it didn't matter that he wasn't you know he was a world war ii allied commander um, quite clearly a leader he just didn't see himself that way at all and it wasn't until um, he realised who his opponent would be, who's Senator Taft, who ironically um, opposed NATO, um, that he felt a duty to run. And he finally listened to what everyone was saying to him. And he got pushed into running for president. Um, and two terms later, he left office with the highest approval rating for any president ever. Now, if you compare that to the president who's just left office, um, you can quite clearly see what sets them apart. One of them was a reluctant leader to the core, the other quite the opposite, so much so that his colleagues have just tried to impeach him to stop him running again in 2024. So what is a reluctant leader? How do you spot them and how can you support them? Well, put simply, a reluctant leader is somebody with all the skills to lead and the ability to lead who just doesn't want to. Um, but they're often driven to lead to fix a problem or to right a wrong and find themselves in leadership positions, not to further their own personal ambition, but to further a cause. And often they're really surprised when they end up in that position, but their colleagues aren't. So who comes to mind when you hear that description? Again, you have to believe me, I had another lovely slide. Um, and on that slide, I had a few pictures for you. So. History is full of these people, religious texts in particular. So Moses might be one of our first examples um, of a reluctant leader. Um, what about the modern day people like Greta, maybe, or Obama? Would that surprise you to know that Barack Obama is often classed as a reluctant leader? And the trait that they all share is that they're brilliant leaders, natural leaders, but they probably didn't realize it at the time. Now, how can you spot them? Well, they're people who are actually already leading. Um, often they're leading on stuff they're really passionate about, they're inspiring colleagues to line up behind them and they're affecting change from right where they are already. So why then don't they want to lead? Well, they're cause driven, so they need a cause. And they have sometimes a different approach. They listen more than they talk. They work collaboratively on problems. And often they shine best when they're able to advocate for other people. If they don't have that cause, um, then often they don't feel ready to step up into that role. They also want what's best for their team. And if they don't believe that they're the best leader, um, then actually they think that somebody else might be better in that position. And they're not driven by the same personal ambition that other people are that would make them bad leaders, make bad leaders push themselves to the front again and again. They're also morally driven people. So if they have seen examples of bad leadership, they won't want to be part of the problem and therefore they can't be what they can't see. So how do they end up being leaders? Well, as I mentioned, they're often persuaded to take up leadership uh, positions by others. But more commonly, when you speak to these leaders, when you hear their stories, there's a tipping point. There's a spark, there's something that's happened which has started a fire that they just couldn't extinguish. And it's a pursuit of that cause that pushes them into leadership. Um, you know, they feel a sense of duty, they want to help 
fix a problem and they find themselves leading. So what have reluctant leaders done for us in a pandemic? Why am I, why am I going on about this? Why am I talking about this? Um, so we have a really important reluctant leader. And I think that's probably, and I might be being unfair because I don't know him, but the person that comes to my mind is Chris Whitty, our chief medical officer. And I had a side of a picture of him standing next to Boris Johnson at one of, um, one of the briefings. And when you look at those two, you realize that probably Chris Whitty never thought he'd be at the helm leading doctors, leading our NHS in a time of national crisis, to be the public health expert thrust of the forefront, probably quite unwillingly, whereas Boris Johnson's probably been dreaming of that for a very, very long time. Now, did he ever want that? I don't know, maybe he did, but I suspect not. And actually, when you speak to junior doctors who have worked with him, no one's surprised at how brilliant he's been or how well doctors have lined up behind him because he'd been displaying those leadership qualities long before that. And what about the rest of us, the, the, mere, the mere mortals, those of us um, at the coalface? Um, well, I, I suppose it all started to go um, a little bit wrong and, I think clinicians had found their voice many years before that with things that had already been going wrong in the NHS. A really good example is the junior doctor contract dispute, which many of us thought was completely really unsafe and really unfair. And we spoke up about that because we advocated ultimately for our patients. And what we saw in this pandemic was that there seemed to be a breakdown of trust. And there was certainly a breakdown of trust between clinicians on the front line and the government and then I think eventually a breakdown of trust between the government and the public and suddenly the public were turning to clinicians they wanted to hear what we had to say was it really that bad on the front line what should we do is it important that we stay in lockdown because for some reason those messages just weren't being heard and people just weren't listening and they were breaking the rules and we found ourselves in a second peak on the front lines. So many, uh, many clinicians were really concerned about this breakdown of trust. We're really concerned that the public weren't following the rules. And we're really, really concerned when we started to head into the second wave. Um, I think for many of us with things so stretched on the front line, we could see the car crash coming from a long way off. And doctors tried to speak up and we tried um, to make sure the public was aware and could see what we were seeing in the hope that actually people might stay home, um, especially over Christmas. And I think, I think that it worked. Um, and you've seen, a, we've seen a lot of, of really good reluctant leaders come to the fore. And I had a slide with some pictures, but hopefully you'll recognize their names. People like Rachel Clark, and she's amazing, frontline palliative care doctor talking about the families, the people that she'd had to sit next to and hold their hands in full PPE as they died, having to hold iPads up, you know, so people could say goodbye to their loved ones. People like Dominic Paminta, who has set up the, and is now a director of the Healthcare Workers Foundation, who's raised over a million pounds to help frontline healthcare staff, just an amazing advocate. And people like Rupert Pierce. Um, who's an ICU consultant who went to social media to create these tweetorials uh, and tell the public really 
um, what the conditions were on the front line to encourage people to stay home. And there's no doubt that us as a collective um, helped push for things that I don't think we would have achieved had we not all come together and found our voices reluctant leaders. A lot of that was around PPE um, in the first wave, us speaking up about how bad things were. And when you read things like we were wearing bing bags on the front line, that was absolutely what was happening. Or doctors going to see patients um, with COVID who were doing aerosol generating procedures that didn't have the full PPE. All of that was true and all of that was happening. And people were getting sick um, and we were having to ventilate our colleagues in intensive care. So people started speaking up about PPE um, and indeed taking things into their own hands. So the Doctors Association UK, which I run, um, we helped work with other organisations to deliver 45,000 items of PPE to the front line in just a few weeks in the first wave. But it was clinicians again that just keep that kept speaking up. And now I think many of us feel very guilty that we didn't shout louder as reluctant leaders, particularly saying what's happened now, that we have the highest death rate in the world for COVID-19. And that's really hard to hear as a frontline member of NHS staff. Um, you know, we worked so hard, so hard, and that's still what the outcome was. So it's been really heartbreaking that despite all of this, that people have spoken up and everyone's worked so hard that actually so many of my colleagues are planning to leave and are making their exit plans now. And there's no doubt that part of that is because people are traumatised. And when you work in ICU, when, well, as a clinician anywhere, if you work in medicine, you expect to deal with death. But... What we didn't expect was the sheer scale of it. And I think what's made it so hard for us is that people would come in talking with their oxygen levels critically low already, um, not knowing how much danger they were in. And they'd be talking and smiling and joking and you would build a rapport with them, but you would pull up their X-ray and you would see COVID in every corner of their lungs and you knew what was going to happen to that person. And sure enough, hours later, they'd be fighting for their lives on a ventilator. And with the visiting rules being so strict, actually, it was us providing that end of life care. It was us, as Rachel said, holding up those iPads. It was having to sit there and hold people's hands as they slipped away from behind a mask. And we just couldn't give the care that we wanted to be able to give. There is no doubt that we were so stretched that we just didn't have the resources to give people the time or the care that we would have done in normal times. And for clinicians, that's particularly hard to deal with. I don't think we ever thought that we would be looking after our own colleagues either. Um, I can't tell you what it's like to have to ventilate a colleague or to have to break bad news to a colleague's family. I've lost several colleagues and it's not something that you're ever trained to deal with. But having said all of that, when you speak to people about why they want to leave, they don't say any of that. And actually, when we look at the risk of PTSD or now what we know is moral injury, we know that actually the primary stresses are perhaps less important than the secondary stresses. So when you speak to people, they say, 
I just feel so unappreciated. I'm just so disappointed with how I've been treated. And it's simple things. It's having somewhere to get hot food in the middle of the night. It's having somewhere to rest. It's being able to park somebody somewhere at work and not drive around for 45 minutes after an hour and a half commute. It's having a staff room, you know, to sit and chat with your colleagues. It's small things, it's basic things. And these are things that we can all change. I think there's an understanding that we can't go back to the way things were. And that actually the pandemic has opened up this conversation um, for us to change things. And many of you in this room will have the power to change things. So how does that relate to reluctant leaders? Well, I think many of us have realized that we're facing a mass exodus if we don't do something right now. And that's exactly what um, reluctant leaders have done. <clears throat> and they've really taken things into their own hands. And there are some absolutely incredible examples of where people have done this. And it's things like delivering hot food, working with charities or local restaurants to deliver hot food in the middle of the night. And again, it sounds simple, but I cannot tell you when it's three in the morning and you've been in PPE for 16 hours, what a difference having a hot bowl of food makes. It, will, it Honestly, it just makes, makes your night and helps you just push through until the morning. Um, it's things like finding rooms like the Healthcare Worker Foundation have done, finding rooms that are not fit for purpose um, and turning them around into somewhere that we can do, you know, 15 minutes of mindfulness like Zoe has just taught us to do um, in an environment that's a safe place and a private space um, that's restorative and allows people to then go and go back after their breaks, having had a natural break and give proper um, patient care. It's things like sorting out free parking, peer support services, and actually, I think the traditional leaders have taken note of that. And I'd love to think that this was actually bottom up, compassionate leadership, because then we saw some really amazing stuff come from the top. And it's stuff like at Southampton, when I was there before, they sent us all a letter um, and it was a surprise. And in that letter, they put a free voucher for a cup of coffee. Um, a little pin to say thank you for being part of the COVID team and they gave us an extra day of annual leave which was a well-being day to do with whatever we want that makes us happy to look after ourselves and I, I got a bit emotional and I opened that letter and it sounds really and I, I was like oh gosh I'm you know I really need to sleep a bit more <laughs> I'm getting teary about this letter but then when I went back into work everyone was talking about this letter and how emotional it made them just such a small thing that just meant so much. Another really good example was um, actually more than one trust CEO writing to um, children of parents who were frontline NHS workers to say, your mummy or your daddy have done an amazing job saving lives. They are incredible. Thank you for loaning us your mummy and daddy. Small thing, didn't cost a lot, meant the world to people. So back to reluctant leadership, um, how can we as reluctant leaders help carry on the good work of the reluctant leaders during the pandemic? 
maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh, maybe I'm a reluctant leader. Or you're sitting there thinking, oh, I think I actually know somebody like that. What can we do? So firstly, persuade people to lead. A reluctant leader will have all the leadership qualities um, to lead, but they probably won't be able to spot it in themselves. But you can. So one strategy is to give them a lot of positive reinforcement and feedback. And another is simply just to ask them, ask them to lead. And if they're still reluctant, show them how they're already leading, because I guarantee you they absolutely will be already. Secondly, be aware of what drives reluctant leaders. They're driven by a cause. So be aware that they'll be very passionate and very driven in an area that they feel is right. And perhaps not so much in the stuff that still needs to be done, but doesn't float their boat. And for those of you managing clinicians, you probably know this all already. Um, anyone that's had to manage us in A&E will know um, how hard it is to get, to get us to adhere to, um, to four hour targets and um, the way that you guys uh, the way that you guys do. So that is a challenge with reluctant leaders. And um, because of that, reluctant leaders often burn very bright and very fast. So one strategy is to harness that energy for a particular cause, put them to work, and then if you can, have the flexibility to allow them to step back down from that leadership role once the problem is fixed um, or, or the cause has been addressed. Um, another thing to be aware of is that reluctant leaders often wear their hearts and not their personal ambition on their sleeve. And because of that, internal politics can put them right off. Um, and they might not have a thick skin um, compared to those who have put themselves forward for a, a leadership role. So protect them from that and be aware of that if you can. And lastly, realise that everyone has their own, their own leadership style. You don't have to be the person that's shouting loudest in the room to be a leader. So support that, um, allow them to listen more than their talk because that may well be their style. Um, they will likely trend towards collaborative leadership. That's a strength, but it might come at the expense of authority and retaining control and getting stuff done. So they might need a bit of support and development in that area. So what can we do going forward? Um, so my call to action is please just keep your ears and your heart open to the problems that have been identified by reluctant leaders during the pandemic. It makes me really, really sad to hear there's this sort of us and them thing. There's this perception. There's there's just there just seems to be a bit of a chasm between sometimes frontline clinicians and the people managing them. And ultimately, we're all on the same team and progress and progressing our, our, our patients' course. But having said that, I think there's a general acceptance that we just can't go back to the way things were. And if we do, we will lose them. And there is no doubt we will, we will be losing people, no matter what we do. But I think we can stem that flow by doing some really, really important things now. So what can you do to help us? What initiatives can you put in place within the sphere that you can control? And think about who you know who might be a reluctant leader, how you can turn them from a reluctant leader into a ready and willing one encouraging them to take that step forward and recognising the work that they can do, the qualities that they bring, 
and supporting them in the areas that they might need further development. And finally, if you're sitting there thinking, well, maybe I'm a reluctant leader, could this be the little push you need to maybe step up? And I think, believe me, if I can do it, then anyone can. Um, so I had the best slide of the talk, which unfortunately I can't put up, but I'm, I'm, I am gonna read it out to you and it is from Harry Potter. Um, and it's a quote from probably the wisest man that I know, um, a reluctant leader, maybe himself, um, Albus Dumbledore. And the quote says this, it is a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. So let's wear it well. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you so, so much. I think hopefully you'll have a chance before you go today, just have a look through the chat box and see just how much love there is for you, how much emotion you have created in all of our, all of us going through this. And um, I think today we started off and Caroline, we're talking, Caroline and I were talking about how it's going to be a real positive kind of uplifting day. And I think it has been, but I think it was so important that we heard from you today. I think it was so important that we didn't try and avoid this conversation, didn't try and sweep it under the rug, but also I feel like you have given us hope. I think you've given us and a lot of people have said it in the chat that you've given us real solutions, real things to think about and real things that, like you said, within our own sphere of influence, we can't all change the world, but we can do these, these little things in some cases to make, to make a difference. So I really want to stress that your time has been so valuable to this. And I can just see by the, from the chat box here just how much of a difference. And I think you will inspire real change off the back of that. Caroline, I don't know if you've got any, any other thoughts to add today. No, just the same, Joe. actually, what an incredible woman you are, Sammy, and thank you for coming to join us today and for taking the time and to deliver such a, an incredibly emotional, actually, a number of people said, I, I, was cry I was crying as I listened to you, and I was certainly felt very close to tears myself at times. What you've been through was immense, and the wisdom that you've taken from it was also immense and we can learn so much from that and thank you to your call to support those reluctant leaders and to those reluctant leaders themselves to step forward because we've got a uh, got to really work together and support one another i think as we as we kind of move forward from here and that was wonderful thank you